you open your Bibles to us, it's Matthew 26, verse 1 through 16. Matthew 26, verses 1 through 16. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 781. And I was nervous, and then we started singing about Jesus Christ. So we're good. But let's do it. Today our text is going to break down into two sections. The first two verses are going to give us what I call the paradox of Jesus. And then verses 3 through 16 will show us the paradox of Jesus' people. And so for any note takers, three points we're going to go through this morning. First is going to be the worth of the Passover lamb. Second will be the wickedness of these men. And third will be the worship of this woman. Let's read verses 1 through 2 to consider the worth of the Passover lamb. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. The story resumes. The last teaching chunk of Matthew's gospel is completed, and as Matthew often does, he goes from teaching to narrative, teaching, narrative. And now we're coming to the climax of the story. And for the guests who might be here in response to Blake's Easter challenge, this is week three of three, I remember, I'm really glad you're here. And you're tuning in at a phenomenal time in the story. You know how in every great fighter movie, there comes this awesome montage scene where the hero of the story starts training for the fight, think Rocky or Creed. Some awesome song starts playing in the background. And you know, if you got a little sidetracked in the movie, it's all good because here we go, it's time. The climax is coming, and that's where we are in Matthew's gospel. Matthew writes, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, and by all these sayings, he's referring to the entirety of Jesus' teaching ministry, from the Sermon on the Mount, to all his parables, to the dismantling of the false teachers of the Pharisees, and to his most recent stunning prediction of the end of the temple and the astounding revelations to come. And hasn't Jesus in a way that only Jesus can do, and by that I mean when he talks in the third person, he tells you about this son of man, this son of man who will do these glorious things. Hasn't he taught us that he's not just a mere man but the king of the world? Look back at verses 31 through 34 of chapter 25. We'll read those one more time. Matthew writes, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You see that Jesus has taught us he is the king of the whole creation. He's going to judge all the nations. The angels, they belong to him. And it's his throne does not belong to anyone else. But what does he then say to his disciples? He says, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. See, that's the paradox of Jesus. He's the king, and yet he's delivered up to be crucified. Now, this isn't the first time that Jesus has predicted his death. He's done that three times already. But importantly, this is the first time that he mentions his death 
in conjunction with the Passover. And that's what's crucial. If we miss that, we're going to miss the driving thrust of what Jesus is teaching us. In other words, I don't think it's a historical accident, a mere coincidence, that Jesus' coming crucifixion will happen at Passover. No. Jesus is he's tipping his hat, giving us a little wink about the Passover. And so I want us to think about the Passover. I want us to think his, historically and theologically so that we make sure we know what's going on. So first, historically. I heard one pastor recently describe the Passover in modern terms like this. If Americans celebrated the Passover, it would be like Juneteenth, Independence Day, and New Year's Day all thrown together in one. That's because it was the Jewish people's liberation from slavery from Egypt. It marked the day of their nation's independence and freedom, and it was to be the celebration which marked the beginning of their calendar. And you see, this had massive implications for the city of Jerusalem in Jesus' day. Scholars debate about the extent of the population growth during the time of the Passover and the subsequent week-long Feast of Unleavened Bread, but the debates are trivial because they argue whether it's six or ten times the normal population. Regardless of the details, as the story unfolds in the rest of this gospel, you should be thinking of New York City on New Year's Eve. That kind of energy, that kind of anticipation, those kinds of numbers, those kinds of crowds. That helps us what will come in verse 5 when the Jewish leaders don't want to arrest Jesus among the crowds. It's because there are crowds, not just because Jesus is an amazing teacher, but because it's Passover. It's Juneteenth, Independence Day, and New Year's all together in one. And the energy would have been palpable. And understanding these historical realities will help put some teeth into the story for us. But more important than the history is the theology of the Passover. And so turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. Turn with an Exodus chapter 12. Genesis, Exodus. If you're using a pew Bible, it's page 50. While you're turning there, at this point in history, God has brought nine plagues upon Pharaoh and his Egyptian people. The Jewish people are booming, but Pharaoh's heart is repeatedly hardened, and he will not relent and let God's people go. And God threatens one final plague, one final judgment, the death of the firstborn of every family in the land of Egypt. But we'll see that God provides a way for his people to be spared. And so let's walk through God's instructions to Israel in Exodus chapter 12. Starting in verse 1, we're going to walk through this passage selectively. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb, according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood 
and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. Skip down to verse 12 with me. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and I will strike, sorry, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Skip down to verse 25. Verse 25. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Two key observations. First, for Israel to be spared, a sacrifice must be given. A lamb without blemish must die. They must take the blood of the lamb, wipe it on the two doorposts of their home, put it on the lintel so that the Lord would see and spare them from his wrath so that they would not be justly dealt with according to their disobedience. And second, the Passover creates a people. What it meant to be a Jew what it meant to be an Israelite was to be one who had received the mercy of God. Don't you see it? Don't you see God's grace to his people? He graciously reveals to them instructions. He provides for them a way. And in response, they obey and tell of God's mercy to generation after generation after generation. Keeping the Passover as a memorial, a scrapbook of sorts of their family history. And so each year when Passover would come, fathers would teach their kids what it meant. Think of the Israelites in the land of Canaan. You have arrived in the land that the Lord has promised you. It's full of milk and honey. Life is all blessing. It's all provision. God has been true to his promises. He's a man of his word. But each year you celebrate this past event and you have to kill a lamb. Can you hear the kids inevitably asking, Mom, Dad, why do we have to kill Billy the goat this year? Last year we killed Greg the goat. I really liked Greg. I like Billy. What's the point of all this? It's kind of sad, Dad. Can't you see them in the land of Canaan? The father hears his firstborn son ask the question, his face tightens up. You see his eyes glaze over for a moment. He kneels down, scoops up his firstborn son, gathers all the family together. He says, son, this is the Lord's Passover. We killed this lamb because when you were just a little boy and your siblings weren't even here yet. Mommy and daddy and all of our people lived in the land of Egypt. And we were enslaved. 
But one day, God told us he was going to rescue us. He told us that one day we would be set free and that the night was coming soon. And oh, son, the Lord did amazing things, but he saved the most amazing, horrific thing for last. He told us on the night before we would be set free that he would kill all the firstborn children in the land of Egypt. But if we would take an unblemished lamb, kill it, put its blood on the doorposts and the lintels, we would be spared. And son, God was true to his word. He did what he said he was going to do. And I'll never forget that night. The cries and the moans are seared into my brain, but our God is merciful. And he spared us. He saved us. And he brought us into this amazing land so that we would worship him. And we do it every year so that we will never forget. And so that you can know why we do this. And when you have a family of your own, you can pass this truth on to the next generation so that God will be worshiped forever. And so to summarize, at Passover, God's people were spared and formed by the blood of a lamb. At Passover, God's people were spared and formed by the blood of a lamb. And to restate my reason for walking us down this historical and theological trail about the Passover is because Jesus is telling us subtly, for now at least, come back next week and you'll see it not so subtly, that the Son of Man will be crucified at Passover. The world will never be the same. A new covenant will be enacted for no longer will little lambs be offered year after year after year for Jesus Christ, the final Passover lamb has come. And so don't for a second think it's just a strange accident of history that Jesus' death directly coincides with the Passover. No, this is God's sovereign hand guiding history so that you will see in no uncertain terms that what the angel declared to Joseph, that she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins, comes to pass through the cross. Through Jesus' sacrifice of himself on our behalf, he is the lamb by whom the church is spared and formed. He is the lamb who takes away the sins of the world and friends. He is worthy. He is infinitely worthy and his blood is priceless. And just like God appointed a day and judged Egypt, God has appointed a day when each and every one of us will stand before him. And there's only one man's sacrifice sufficient to turn away God's wrath from you on that day. Only one man's blood whom you can paint on the doorpost and the lintel of your heart and be spared. On that great and terrible day, your only hope is in the blood of the Lamb. King Jesus, the king whose crown is thorns, the king whose victory comes through his death and resurrection. Let's turn back to Matthew now. We've seen the paradox of Jesus, meaning that somehow the Son of Man will judge the nations in power and glory is the same Son of Man who will be crucified. Jesus Christ is the true and final Passover Lamb. 
His blood is of infinite worth. And now we'll see the paradox of God's people. So read with me verses 3 through 5 and 14 through 16 as we consider the wickedness of these men. The wickedness of these men. And then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together (coughs) in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Verse 14, and then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. At this point in Matthew's gospel, we're not terribly surprised by the actions of the Jewish leaders. We've seen them spar with Jesus time and time again. We've seen them try to outwit Jesus. We've seen Jesus speak very harshly to them. And so we're not shocked. Same with Judas for many of us Christians or even just anyone who's grown up in Abilene. There's a good chance you know your Bible trivia. Let's practice. Who betrayed Jesus? There we go. You passed the test. And even when we were first introduced to Judas in chapter 10, Matthew introduces him as Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. But before we just brush past these wicked men who we're familiar familiar with, I want us to think a little bit longer and see what this shows us about the depths and power of sin. So just by way of reminder, who are the chief priests and elders of the people? They would be men set apart by God and God's people to intercede on the people's behalf, to teach them God's instructions, to be models to the people, to adjudicate the law in court. In short, they were the shepherds of Israel. They're supposed to be the creme de la creme, the best of the best, the men who should be above reproach. Hear what Moses was looking for when he first set apart elders for the people of Israel. This is what he was seeking. Look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people. You see, it should be shocking to us that those who should be living in the light without fear of being found out, whose life should be examples for the masses, we now find, we now find around a table probably, speaking in hushed tones, planning to do the unthinkable. Those who should hate a bribe, who should be revolted at the very idea, not only listen to it, but allow the thought to take root until it's matured into actions. And they know it's wrong because they don't want to do it in public or else the crowds will find out. They'll riot. You see, this is the height of wickedness. They not only wanted to arrest him, they started planning that back in chapter 21, but now they want to kill him, but in secret. Can anyone else see the bitter irony here? What would the elders of Israel teach their people regularly? Ten Commandments. Anyone know the Sixth Commandment? There we go. You shall not murder. This would have been on their lips regularly and now caught up in the envy and jealousy and anger in their hearts, they find themselves about to murder their Messiah. That's astounding. 
Sin is deceitful. Consider Judas Iscariot with me. Friends, he was one of the 12. He walked and talked with Jesus. He would have been there to hear the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. It would have been electric. He had uninhibited access to Jesus for years. And we've seen that Jesus is absolutely amazing. He did some astounding things. And Judas would have seen him do all of those things. Do you remember the leper that came to Jesus and said, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean? This leper, social outcast, victim of a terrible disease. And Jesus looked at him, stretched out his hand, touched him, and said, I will be clean. And immediately, his leprosy was cleansed. Or do you remember the woman, woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, had spent all of her money on doctors who couldn't help her, but she comes to Jesus. She believes what she has heard about him, ducks and fights her way through the crowd just to touch his garment. Not even his body, just his garment. And Jesus looks at her and says, take heart. Take heart, my daughter, for your sins. Your faith has made you well. And instantly, the woman was made well. Remember the 5,000? How they got fed with five loaves and two fish? Somehow that multiplied. Judas was there, and yet he agreed to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. It's probably about a month's wages. It's not a bad haul. Not a terrible day at the office. That is, if he wasn't betraying the Messiah, the Passover lamb whose blood is of infinite worth. And these examples are the height of wickedness, and they reveal to us the deceitfulness of sin and the craftiness of the devil. And our temptation is to think, I would never do that. And right when we start thinking like that, the devil's got you right where he wants you. Just waiting for you to swallow that lie, that lie that runs rampant in Abilene. I wonder if you've heard it. The lie that says, I'm not that bad. Right? We're not that bad. We're in Abilene. Some of us go to church. We try to stay married. We're not that bad. Right? No, wrong. Your heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Hasn't Jesus taught you that out of your heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander? Think to yourself of your own rebellion and sin. Think about that sin you hate to think about, that one that haunts you, whether it was that one night or that one season of life. Sometimes you wake up in the middle of the night and you just can't believe you did it. You know the guilt and the shame. And I think when you were young and you dreamed and your whole life was out ahead of you, did you ever think you would be capable of such evil? I mean, maybe I grew up around a unique batch of really righteous kids, but I don't remember any of my friends ever saying when I grew up, I want to be addicted to pornography, make a wreck of my marriage. I remember anybody saying, I'm going to be an angry man. I'm going to be someone who lacks self-control and moderation and who strikes fear into the hearts of my family. I'm going to be a gossip. I'm going to cheat on my spouse. 
No. And in the same way, I don't think Judas ever thought, I'm going to be the one who betrays the king of the world one day. I don't think the chief priests and the people of Israel ever thought, we're going to murder the Messiah, the one we've been looking for our entire lives. But wicked hearts left to their own devices will always choose violence and betray their maker. Friends, while you might differ in degree from these men, you suffer from the same nature. You too have a heart rotten to the core, but praise God, that's why Jesus came to die as the Passover lamb, to give you new hearts that long after him. And so today, as you see the wickedness of these men, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Seek to be innocent of evil and wise to what is good. Take every thought captive to obey Christ. Be killing sin or sin will kill you. Wake up. The devil is real and he wants to ruin your life and rob God of his glory and he starts really small. It's always a slow fade, isn't it? Rome didn't fall in a day. You see, it's a thought that you let linger. It's allowing bitterness to take root in your heart. It's allowing the sun to go down on your anger. It's withholding forgiveness. It's the second glance. And so be warned, beloved. Be warned. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Give sin nowhere to land in your life. Make your life an ecosystem that is utterly inhospitable to sin. And briefly, I want to say a word, especially to the leaders of this church in light of this text. Brothers, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You see, the devil would really love to have you. Because by God's grace, you are no longer just responsible for yourself, but you're responsible for the souls of this congregation. And so be militant. Take every thought captive to Christ. Persist in this. Keep going. Press on. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Third and finally, consider with me the worship of this woman. Let's read verses 6 through 13. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Friends, this is the paradox. In sharp contrast to the chief priests and elders of the people plotting to murder their king, and in sharp contrast to one of Jesus' own 12 disciples, Judas Iscariot, who betrays Jesus and puts a petty value of 30 pieces of silver on his life, Matthew tells the story of a woman. It takes place in Bethany. 
a town outside Jerusalem. It would have just been another night. Just one more time of fellowship between Jesus and his disciples, enjoying a meal, reclined at dinner table. And this woman comes up to Jesus with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment. She pours it on his head. She worships him with something that costs her. We don't get an estimate from Matthew, but we get the fact that it was very expensive and evidently so expensive that it could have fed many of the poor and helpless in the city. As the disciples express their righteous indignation, Jesus, are you kidding me, they said? Jesus, did you see what that woman did? What a waste. What a tragedy. We could have taken that to the market, bartered a little bit, made a killing, and then helped out the poor. Rebuke her, Jesus. I think they sound a little bit like some of the critics of gospel preaching churches like ours today, don't they? Sounds to me like the disciples were all about that social gospel. That social gospel which prioritizes the things of this world at expense of the next. It's funny how the longer you live, the more you find yourself agreeing with Solomon who said, there's just nothing new under the sun. See, what the disciples said then is the same thing critics of gospel fanatic Christians say today. Why are you Christians so adamant about sending missionaries to the unreached people groups? Why do you gather every week to hear the preaching of the gospel? Why do you give your tithes and offerings to pay people to preach, teach, and counsel God's word? Aren't people dying? Aren't there hundreds of women and men and women in our streets here in Abilene? who could take that money you give to tithe and offer to your church, and it would stop the grumbling and rumbling in their stomachs. Don't you care about immediate suffering? But I think Jesus' words are so instructive. Listen to what he says. Why do you trouble a woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Translation, Jesus tells the disciples, sit down and be humble. Sit down and be humble because you don't get it. But she gets it. She understands who I am. She understands who I am and what I have come to do. Listen to me, Peter. Listen to me, John. The poor will always be among you, and normally you should take care of them. But these are not normal times. And the disciples should have known better. Do you remember when John the Baptist's disciples came up to Jesus earlier in Matthew? And they asked him, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus replied, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. It's the same principle at work here. Jesus is the bridegroom, and he's still here. And I mean, come on, we should get this analogy. When I got married, nobody was doing keto that night. (laughs) Nobody was counting calories. Nobody was fasting. No, because it's a celebration. God gave me this good gift of a wife, a stunning godly woman who fears the Lord and just promised to never leave me nor forsake me. Now, nobody's abstaining tonight. 
nobody fasts. And in the same way, the woman gets that, whereas the disciples don't. And what does the woman do? She brings a gift and she offers it to Jesus. Not just something periphery, cheap, something she could do without. No, she brings her precious possession. Her alabaster flask of expensive ointment estimated as a year's worth of wages. She poured out every last drop on Jesus' head. Judas betrayed Jesus to get one month's wage. This woman bathes Jesus in a year's worth of labor. The disciples see an extravagant waste, but Jesus sees an extravagant act of fitting worship. In dousing Jesus' head with oil, she anoints Jesus as king. She pledges her fealty. She gives to him her life. This is the king whose crown is thorns. The king whose victory comes through his death. The king who spares his people and forms his people by shedding his own blood on the cross. Our Passover lamb. And so the question that you must answer today is this. Is Jesus worthy? Is Jesus worthy? Do you know anything like the adoration of this woman? Or does her act seem foolish to you as well? A woman whose name we don't know, but whose act of worship will be known wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world. And isn't that amazing? Jesus just assumes that this gospel is going to the whole world. And he was right. I'm right here preaching in Abilene, Texas. Jesus is a true prophet. He's the king of the world, and he commands you to worship him. So will you bow your knee this morning? Will you turn from your sin? Will you believe Jesus? And will you give your very life to worship him? How can you know? How can you show that he is worthy? Well, I think the woman's example is instructive. Worship Jesus with your possessions. Give till it hurts. What do you have that is of value that you could offer to Jesus? We should marshal our resources to make much of the king. Make your budget reflect Jesus' lordship, worth, and honor. Give your money to extend the reach of the proclamation of the gospel in the whole world through the local church. The world will call you foolish. Even people in the church might say, ah, he's gone a little too far this time. Why are you wasting your money? But Jesus will commend you. And what better institution to give to than the one whom Jesus has set about? The gates of hell will not prevail against it. They prevailed against Judas, the chief priest, but they do not ever prevail against the church of God. Oh, beloved, may we be a people who believe that Jesus Christ is worthy of all that we have to offer and more. Oh, did this unnamed woman have it right? Anoint him crown him, the true and righteous king of the world. To close, the author of Hebrews says this about the redemption that Jesus has accomplished for you and I. He writes, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. 
thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Friends, the right response to the Passover celebration in Exodus was worship. How much more should we worship now that our Passover lamb has been sacrificed? By Jesus' blood, you have been saved to the uttermost. And this woman, she didn't even know what we know. We have the fullness of revelation. So you should walk out of here today with the joy and confidence that yours is not a redemption that is shaky. It's not unsure. No, your redemption is eternal. And so give your life to make much of Jesus. You fill in the blank with what that looks like. What unique opportunities has God afforded you in your sphere of influence to make much of him? Whatever they are, take them and run with them. Oftentimes we do this thing where we're always waiting for the next season, the next set of circumstances, when it just seems right to finally seek to do great things for Jesus. But friends, stop waiting. Just do something. I doubt this woman thought to herself, you know, today I'm going to do something that will reverberate throughout world history. I bet if I take that alabaster flask and dump it on Jesus' head, then people will see that he is infinitely worthy. No, I think she just did something. She took what she had and she gave it to Jesus. May we be like her. Worship Jesus. He is worthy.